0: Welcome to the Behavioral Healthcare Executive Podcast. I am BHE Senior Editor, Tom Valentino, and today I'm joined by Kevin Turner, the Principal Architect for Human Experience, a behavioral healthcare consulting firm that specializes in capital projects. Kevin's contributed a number of articles on facility design for BHE over the years. Kevin, it's nice for us to uh, finally give our audience a voice to put with your words on the screen. Welcome to the show.
1: Glad to be here.
0: All right. So, why don't you give our listeners a little bit more background on your firm and what you do specifically in your role?
1: Sure, of course. So, uh, our firm is a little bit unique. So, I, I explain this to people quite a bit. As far as I can tell, there really isn't anybody else in the country like us doing what we do. So, there are fundamentally two principals in the firm myself and Sherry Reyes. Um, I am an architect who has focused on the design of psychiatric facilities of all kinds for little over 20 years now. And my partner, Sherry, is a clinician and behavioral health executive who has been everything from psych hospital CEO to regional operations director for behavioral healthcare for large healthcare firm. And so together, we provide a unique set of of services. We consult with design teams and directly with clients, which could be hospitals or smaller regional behavioral healthcare groups at all levels. Um, so that concludes things like the very simple and obvious helping people design new facilities. It can be helping people figure out how to uh, work through uh, com- regulatory compliance if, if uh, joint commission or CMS has not been pleased with the facility. There's a lot of that going around. We'll talk about that some more, I'm sure, hot topic. Um, But it also can include things like um, if you want to expand the program itself before you even start to imagine what kind of space you need you need to do a complete analysis of what your program is and what your new expansion means what are the what are the impacts to your net revenues what's the market analysis for that and we do all of that as well and then often at the end of projects we can also come in and do things like helping with operationalizing a new facility that we may or may not have designed. It may have been designed by somebody else, but we can still bridge that gap. So we often think of ourselves as a bridge between the world of design and construction and the world of behavioral health operations. Um, and just about anything you can fit into that into that bridge is the is, is the the suite of things that we do.
0: Sure. You know, one of the things that got you and I talking over the past few weeks was the obvious impact that COVID-19 um, has had on just so many different aspects of life. And, you know, in regards to your line of work, um, facility design um, and behavioral health care, what would you say have been some of the, the biggest trends that you have observed in, in your field and, and things that have impacted your work over the past uh, 15 months or so?
1: Yeah, I, you know, I'd say the, the biggest one, and, and, and it's the most positive and welcome change, I think, um, has been the move to telehealth. Um, I think we're seeing a lot of positive feedback from people um, at, the, at the day-to-day level, just just people, more people reaching out to therapists um, because of the availability of telehealth. And so fears that that would lead to a lower quality of care, I think, have turned into optimism that it may even be a better um a person may be more comfortable at home talking to somebody than they are having to make the trip and all the the stress that goes with that we're also seeing that at at the um, facility level as well so a lot of hospitals have gone to telehealth to allow the patients to visit with family members or allow doctors to meet with family members Um, you know, we have a severe bed shortage. So particularly when you're talking about getting a patient into the right acute treatment, they may not be close to their family. Um, And so it it actually, it's quite a hardship for the family to come in on a regular basis, to meet with the doctors, to meet with the treatment team, to visit their, their loved one. And it's not that they aren't willing to do that. But if we can provide the opportunity to do that virtually, um, there's a lot of ability to increase the number of those visits and meetings because, quite frankly, people have lives, right? You may you may want to spend every day visiting your loved one, but you have to go to work. And if they're two hours away, you have a conflict. And so um, so I think the level of care has improved dramatically by the option. And I would, I would like to see, and I'm hearing from clients, that they expect to see that continue to be an option. So for designers, obviously designing more spaces that are designed for that use. Um, we're seeing a lot of that being retrofitted now, but I think in the future we'll see that purpose built. Um, there's also an operational efficiency side. You know, if you're if you're an operations director or, or a program uh, director for a facility, quite frankly, virtual visits are showing that your, your doctors can meet with more people um, and, and um, you can, you can get a lot more done in the timeframe. So there's, there's advantages both for the therapy and for the operational. Um, there was a lot of resistance to that pre-COVID and now we're seeing um, people really real grasping the benefits of that. I, I don't think that's gonna stop anytime soon. I think that's gonna remain as probably not exclusive. The ability to visit in person will, remit, will, will come back, has come back. Um, but I think that option will remain available and it'll be very helpful to a lot of um, both families and providers.
0: You mentioned that, you know, there, there have been spaces within buildings that have been kind of retrofitted to serve mm-hmm. those purposes, um, just given the, the circumstances and whatnot. And, you know, maybe we start to see, um, you know, I think in your, your words, purpose built, um, you know, rooms being designed that way in the future to, to accommodate uh, th- those types of arrangements. Are there developments that you've seen over the, the past year or so, you know, things that have been done uh, to help facilities get by that you think probably don't have as much staying power and um, we're probably going to start to get back away from here in these coming months? Yeah.
1: I, yeah. I think a lot of the, you know, um, to be clear, all your listeners know this, but behavioral health care is a wide range of, of stuff. So um, the, the answer to that question if we're talking about an outpatient clinic is so different than the answer if you're talking about acute inpatient care versus residential treatment versus, you know an, um, uh, addiction treatment, et cetera. But what a lot of people are seeing, particularly in, in the various types of inpatient or partial hospitalization settings, was the social distancing was, was, it, was a difficult challenge. Uh, masking was a difficult challenge. Uh, and different facilities deal, dealt with that differently. I think all of the things that they had to do, I think they're all anxious to stop doing them. Um, mm-hmm. Some of them probably are already with adequate screening, screening excuse me, and um, vaccination. Um, you know, you can start to move away from that. And the more they can, it's inherently a social treatment process. And, and anything that causes you to have to be less social or be restricted in your socialness is, is not helpful. Um, I think the providers have done an amazing, frankly, miraculous job of working through that. But I think, I think everyone will be happy to see that, um, to see us move away from that.
0: So many stakeholders are involved in a design process. You've got architects, you've got the clients, you know, you've got others as well. Um, from where you sit, how do you get everyone on the same page when there are competing ideas in play?
1: Well, I think the key to that is making sure that everybody understands what those competing ideas are. I think, I think the lack of understanding is where is where problems come up more often. That's not unique to behavioral healthcare, but it may be especially acute in this world. I, I have certainly seen projects where uh, a user group comes in and their focus is this is how we do it, and if not enough time is spent thinking about an idealized way of doing it. Um, then what happens is as you go through the design process, their mind opens up and eventually they reach a point where they start to imagine much more possibilities and now they want something different. But we, as designers are already halfway through the process and now it's expensive and it's timely and we're, we're, we're hurting the schedule and then people don't want to do it. My focus is on taking the time early to ask a lot of questions. I ask why a lot um, I, it's not so much about what do you want? Why do you want that? There's so many assumptions that get made that shouldn't, um, in our field, the providers, they know what they do. I want to know how they operate, why they operate that way. Is it because they believe in that as a program or is it because they adapted to the space that they had? If it was because they adapted to the space they had, then why would we copy that? Right? That's is true. it good? Is it bad? It just, cause it's working doesn't mean it's ideal. Um, And so the more time we can do opening up the provider's minds, particularly on the clinical side, less so on the operations, but it's there as well, um, the more we can get them going through some design thinking exercises and and using our operational knowledge to bridge that gap to say, okay, let's all, then we start to have a shared vocabulary and we come at it right from the start with the idea that in a perfect world, we do this. Now we start to look at what are our design obstacles and what can't we do about that. And then the two start to work together, but we start off in so many of these design projects with a mismatch between those two things. And if we can bring those worlds together, um, that's how we keep projects on time, on budget and, um, and people pleased with the outcome.
0: Something I've always been curious about either directly or indirectly, do payers have any sort of a voice in the design process Um, Mm -hmm. if they're footing the bill for treatment, are, are they getting involved anywhere? You're either asking questions about how a a facility is going to be designed or, you know, providing feedback to the, the provider who then, you know, brings it to you. Um, Mm -hmm. what, what's the role there?
1: Um, there's, there's a million ways to answer that question because it depends. Um, you know, so we, we did a, Child and adolescent facility based crisis center, and it was completely funded by the local management entity. Well, they were involved, right? They were, they provided the provider with all the money for the project because they needed it to exist. Um, so they were very involved in the project because they were funding it. They, they were a part of the stakeholder group. Uh, we've done others where it was really just. A hospital wants to add an inpatient wing. They don't really want us to worry about where it's all coming from. They've got that handled by different people and we never we never see them. Um, We just finished. uh, well, not completely finished. We have a project under construction in Texas and, um, you know, it's operated by UT Health, but it's uh, um, owned and paid for by the state, by the uh, Health and Human Services Commission. Well, the employees of Health and Human Services Commission were very, very involved. They were stakeholders there at every meeting. And so we really had two clients. We had the state agency and we had the health care group that was going to be operating it. And there was a lot of, um, a lot of dialogue between the two about what they wanted and, and, and what, was, what was this money to be used for? What was it not to be used for? And what was effective care and what was not effective care? Um, so in some cases, yes, very much so and in other cases very much not. in all cases what a payer will pay for, what their guidelines are, how the rules work, how they how they reimburse obviously affects the way we design and the more we understand that as we design, the better chance we have of creating financially viable treatment programs. There's a lot of belief, that behavioral healthcare just doesn't make money and it, it, that doesn't have to be true. Um, but it requires understanding a lot of complexity to make it not true.
0: All right. Shifting gears, you mentioned at the, uh, the top of this discussion and uh, something you had also noted to me, uh, in an email earlier, um, was the, the continued impact on uh, cost and outcomes uh, of the focus on safety by the, uh, the joint commission and CMS, um, what specifically is happening there to make this a significant issue right now?
1: Uh, it's it's huge. Um, so, th- I have a um, I have a phrase I tell clients so often that I keep it I keep it on my desktop of my computer to copy paste, um, and, and uh, I don't have it in front of me at this very moment. But it basically says it basically says condition whatever it is you just asked me about does not, in my opinion, represent an actual safety risk to patients. However, there's the risk of it being cited by regulatory agencies, so you should spend the money to fix it, (laughs) right? Nowhere in our world should we be saying those things, right? And I say that a lot. And um, to me, what that indicates is that we have a mismatch between the goals of the regulators um, and the way it's actually playing out in the industry. And no, there's no bad guy in this story. CMS is not the bad guy. Joint commission is not the bad guy. DMV, they're doing their jobs. Right. Um, But the reality of the way that behavioral healthcare is being regulated over the last three or four years, when there's been a renewed emphasis on the, there was a change in the way it was regulated in 2017. And, and it's not just architects. There was a, um, a, a w- really well written paper written by the National Association of Behavioral Health Systems in 2019 that analyzed this in great detail. Um, and so if any of your readers haven't seen that, recommend it. But, um, you know, they really focused on three major places where regulations were killing their members, right? Um, one of them is the whole, the, whole, the way B tags, um, are, um, are addressed and that's all operational programming, paperwork, documentation, et cetera. Um, Not my area of expertise, so I won't dig deep, but I'm I'm sure most of your listeners know what that means. The second is ligature risk and safety. That's an area that I I deal with a lot. And then the third is EMTALA um, and the issues associated with that. You know, they specifically found um, that the amount of, that there were tremendous amounts of money being spent uh, to increase ligature safety with very little return in terms of actual increased safety. Um, The opinion of the providers, CMS may disagree with that. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, one of the problems is, is a lack of clarity. Um, You know, I have a friend who is a joint commission surveyor, right? Um, And he, his personality, he's a high compliance personality, right? He wants to know the rules perfectly and then make you follow them perfectly. That's his job. So when you send him out, he hates doing behavioral health um, inspections because the word, the guidance he has is use your judgment. Now, it's not that he doesn't have good judgment. Actually, he's a person of tremendous judgment. It's just that that's not the way his personality is built. He wants to enforce rules. That's why he took that job, you know? And so what we get is I'll tell you a couple of very quick um, stories. Um, I'll simplify them. So we'll just call them parables because i will not use any names. I had a hospital that I was working with um, and they really needed to renovate their inpatient unit. Um, I'd been talking to their facilities director um, and their behavioral health director for years about this. Every year it went on their list of capital projects. Every year the facilities director put it at the top of the list of his recommended capital projects and every year it didn't get funded. Um, And then CMS came in and cited them and they were forced to renovate it and we had to do it all very quickly. That's an example of where the process really works well. This was a hospital wasn't funding needed renovations and CMS basically forced them to mm-hmm. perfect that, that it worked like it's supposed to. Now we could have done a much nicer job for them. Had we done the project, not in, 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 um, in immediate jeopardy, um, but it is what it is. Those were, those were their choices. Um, in the same month I got the call about that one, got a call from another hospital, not an hour up the road. Um, from, so right near each other, uh, they might even have the same reviewers. I don't know. So they had just gotten written up and they asked me to come see their facility. And when I walked in, I had a completely different reaction. This facility was really well cared for. It was obvious that they had gone to a lot of effort to keep it current, keep it up to the latest standards, keep it safe. Not that I couldn't nitpick some things, but if I walked around there and you asked me, does this meet the CMS standards, for, which is a safe area for care, yeah, absolutely, they have a safe place of care. But the reviewer had written up a long list of extremely nitpicky things, most of which neither the clinicians there nor I agreed were even real safety hazards, all of which were most many of which were expensive to fix. Um, and even the even the ones that I would have agreed were real were minor. You know, an example was they were cited for something that could potentially have been thought of as a ligature point. On the front edge of the nurse station. I mean, we just were rolling our eyes, you know. And so that's an example of where the process didn't work. There was no need to cite and put that, that unit in immediate jeopardy. That hospital was doing what they were supposed to do. You could point out a few things. I, I found some things I thought they should they should do better, and they appreciated that. Um, but there was no need to put them through that for their CEO to think that they're not doing their jobs. You know, so in that case, it did not work. And then a the third story I'll throw out, there's another example of what we run into, and this is the lack of clear standards. Um, and this was not one of my clients, a secondhand story, but the story was of a hospital that had decided to upgrade all of their door hardware to ligature-resistant hardware. Uh, big hospital, I was told it was a half-million-dollar project. Mm-hmm. Joint commission came through, looked at it, and said, the hardware you selected is unacceptable, and they had to do the whole thing again. Now, Joint Commission was right, hardware they selected was unacceptable. I personally have issues with that, with that manufacturer who continues to sell that hardware as ligature resistant, even though regulators will not accept it. Um, setting that aside, the facilities director of that facility didn't have a process of knowing that. He didn't mm. submit for a permit, there's no approvals, there was no one he could go to and say, hey, I'm gonna use this. I mean, he could have called someone like me and we probably could have told him pretty quickly that's that hardware is not suitable for your application. Um, But he didn't know that he needed to do it's just replacing hardware, ligature resistant hardware. Well, I'm sure he didn't look good to his boss and I say he actually don't know who it was. He or she, that person in that in that capacity probably didn't look good to their boss. And in the hospital, spent a lot of money twice because there wasn't clear guidance on what the correct thing to do is. And so this is the world that we're, that we're dealing with and it has a profound impact on what we do as our job because clients want us to be able to say, can you protect us from that? And unfortunately we have to say, well, no, no one can because there is a lack of clarity. We can strengthen your case as much as possible. We can do everything possible to help you uh, be compliant but we've seen, we've seen reviewers, you know, one of the NEBH recommendations was that if a, if a reviewer recommends a solution and the hospital implements the solution, they should be free from being cited for that same solution for some period of time. You know, they shouldn't be subject to the next reviewer having a different uh, judgment on it. Sure. So however it gets solved, which we probably don't want to try to get into today, it's a big, big cost impact um, to clients, more so on renovations, because the solutions are much more difficult when you're trying to renovate. When you build new, it's much easier to incorporate all that into a brand new facility and get it right and still design a beautiful therapeutic facility. But it's much it's it's much more challenging in renovations. And you know, a lot of these are existing facilities that need to be constantly upgraded. And it's a challenge. And I think, um, I suspect many, many of your listeners are dealing with that. Um, and we spent a lot of our clients are dealing with that. And, and we do our best to to help them help them through that. Um, and I think everybody would like to see that work a little smoother. Um, you know, the goals are right, the, the, the process could use some could use some improvement. So that's that's, that's one of the big financial drivers in the market. It drives up, just drives up the cost of, of care, in some cases in a useful way, and in other cases not quite as, as useful as we'd like it to be.
0: Sure. Kevin, I think you've uh, touched on a lot of things that are probably some very familiar pains for uh, many members of our audience. Uh, great insights all around. Uh, thanks a lot for taking the time to join us today. This has been really good.
1: You're welcome. Glad to be here.
0: All right. Kevin Turner, Principal Architect at Human Experience. Uh, As a reminder, uh, if you're enjoying the BHE podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, and you can also leave us a review on there. Past episodes of our show are also available on our website, behavioral.net. That's going to do it for us. Our thanks again to Kevin Turner. I'm BHE Senior Editor Tom Valentino, and this is has been the Behavioral Healthcare Executive Podcast.